just a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to hear you guys and all of us really worship the Lord together. Uh, thank you, Daniel, for that said and uh, for the worship team. There's moments there where um, it gets a little emotional at times. Um, in my mind, we see we've kind of lived through, in a sense, and these ups and downs. We do it as a church. We do it as families. We do it as communities. We live through these ups and downs, and, and uh, indeed, it's the Lord that brings things back to life and, uh, and, and look for those things. Look for those things that only God can do and how only He can restore, how, only how, how God can only rebuild something that seems utterly lost. There's several situations that, uh, that we've been stepping through as a family a little bit more directly, and one of which, uh, and I've referred to, maybe I need to bring a little clarification. If you don't know... Uh, about a month ago or so, we were praying for, the, is it about a month ago? About a month ago, we were praying for this little guy, kind of the prayer, uh, called a prayer went out for this little guy, his name's Elliot, that he was in some serious health crisis, not sure exactly what, come to find out, he was born with a congenitive heart issue, and, uh, and he didn't make it, and uh, we sat through the other night, uh, just as a family, just immediate family sitting through kind of hearing all of those details. It was really kind of a precious evening and um, yet we see how God works through these things even in the loss, even in the pain. And there's sometimes that we don't necessarily always see that issue or see the reasons why in real time yet we're called as Christ followers to hold on and hope and God shows us over time over the course of time what his plan is and uh, the greatest challenge in that of all is perhaps maybe we'll never see all of those reasons aside of glory. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have reasons. And, and uh, that's just one of several examples I can kind of think of that we've been involved in where God is restoring and renewing and working even in the midst of suffering and pain. And we've kind of talked about that over the course of looking at Mark chapter 7 and the big principle that we'd looked over looked at the last couple of weeks was the fact that God really or Jesus really treats people in two ways uh, generally. And he, what he does on one hand is he confronts those that are coming at him, um, uh, trying to trap him, trying to discredit him. He, he confronts those actually that have, those that have hard hearts. Then he also comforts those that are brokenhearted. He comforts those that come to him with broken hearts. And the Gospel of Mark as a, as a letter really builds to this crescendo. And really the, the pinnacle of that crescendo, the, the pinnacle of that buildup is coming next week. <laughs> so hold on to your hats. Make sure you're here next week. And uh, make sure you're here every week. How's that for a pitch? But uh, that crescendo is in Peter's confession of who Jesus is coming up next week in Mark chapter 8, verse 29. That's really the crescendo. And, and you see, and you will see over the coming weeks, this kind of, it's a real solid shift in his ministry based on that confession. From that point forward, Jesus begins to teach on why he came and uh, also what is coming up in the storyline. But we have this one more message before we get there, so that's just a teaser. Uh, if you haven't listened to any of these messages, of course, you can jump onto our website and uh, scroll down and listen to previous messages. Uh, today's passage really is only written down in two of the four Gospels. It's written down in, here in Mark chapter 8 and also in Matthew chapter 15. John and Luke uh, don't have this account. Uh, and that's fine. These Gospels, we, we see, and we have to remember the fact that we're seeing four perspectives of the same events, uh, and then there's some, a certain amount of liberty as the Holy Spirit inspired each of the writers of, of the Word to, to uh, in different, four different capacities, and so Luke and John don't have these, this particular event anyway coming up, but turn there. We'll just jump right into the Word of God this morning. 
receive from him what he has for us. I do pray that every single Sunday in, in preparation, that we would all just receive from the Lord the things that he has for us, whether it's instruction, whether it's encouragement, whether it's rebuke, whatever that thing is, is that, uh, that God sees that we need as a church, that he would just open that as we open his word. Let's go Mark chapter 8. We'll read first 26 verses. I'll get there in my Bible. You can read it on your phone or your Bible. Here we go. Mark chapter 8, verse 1 says, In those days the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. Then his disciples answered him, How can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and gave thanks, broke them and gave them, <clears throat> and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said, he set them also before them, so they ate and were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away, immediately got in the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them, getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, Is it because we have no bread? But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. So he said to them, how is it that you do not understand? And then he came to Bethsaida, and, brought a blind, and they brought a blind man to him, and they begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand, led him out of town, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything, and he looked up and said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everyone clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into town nor tell anyone in the town. We'll stop there for today. There's kind of four situations that we want to look at here in this passage, going back to verse 1 there. The first situation we'll find in Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. And what you have here is you have this hungry multitude and a compassionate Messiah trying to figure out what do we do. I don't think Jesus was trying to figure out what to do. I think everybody else was trying to figure out what to do. And of course, as we read, the result of a second miracle of provision, and doesn't it seem like a rerun that we just read through this? It's like, it seems like the exact same storyline. And for sure it is. For sure it is. I would propose to the body this morning that if God wants to do two miracles the exact same way, that's within his prerogative. And, and what are we to say? But amen, right? What, what are we to say? But absolutely, God, whatever you want to do and however you want to do it, it's no problem. It's no problem. I chuckle when I say no problem because uh, when we were on vacation, one of the couples that, was, that we spent some time with was... Uh, he was actually the guy that painted this place here a couple years ago, painted the walls. Uh, we did some remodel, painted the stage. His name is Alex, and he's from Russia. And so Alex, English is 
actually pretty good. I will guarantee you it's way better than my Russian. <laughs> I will guarantee you that. And, uh, but as, as things go, when you're talking to somebody that's, you know, that, that their English is a little, that their English is a little rough, uh, uh, and we spent many evenings after dinner, Alex and I just talking, talking about the Bible, talking about the Lord, and uh, no problem, no problem. That was his reply to a lot of my questions. Yeah, no problem, no problem. And I inserted that with a little bit of a chuckle because if God wants to do something in a repetitive fashion, who are we to say anything but no problem, right? Let her fly. We often get a little squeamish, though, if we're honest. We, we personally, I know I do, we get a little squeamish about asking God something a second go around. Let's be real frank about that. Let's be real honest about our own walk with the Lord. And, and, and here's the temptation. The enemy tries to come in and, 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 and layer over our lives this idea of guilt like, oh no, you've already received that. Who are you to say something again? Who are you to ask for the same thing twice? And I think we have to be really cognizant as Christ followers that that is not the voice of the Lord. That's the voice of our enemy. That it's okay to ask God multiple times for the same thing. And he demonstrates his power in this miracle in that way. And like, you know, it's like somehow... The temptation leads us to this conclusion sometimes, and we have to be careful of this, that somehow your prayers, your needs, or your desires, let's just stay with needs because these guys had a real tangible need. They needed to eat. It's been three days. But, but the enemy will come in and try to twist the narrative sometimes for us and, and make your needs seem like an imposition to God. That's not true. That's not true, and we have to have a discernment in that area. Don't let the enemy come in and say something in your ear that somehow diminishes a real present need in your life that you want to put before the Lord. Put it before the Lord. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of Jesus' points was really wrapped around this idea that, we, that we're going to have God's wind at our back when we prioritize him and his ways first, Matthew 5, 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. These people followed him out into the wilderness for three days to hear what he had to say, to understand who Jesus, what Jesus was talking about, what his message was about. And his message, his message was about seeking him. His message is always about the gospel. His message is always a download from the Father put out before the people to encourage them to bend into God and into God's ways. The question is, what are we hungry for? Maybe a better question than that is, who are we hungry for? Are we hungry for Christ in our lives? Are we hungry for His ways in our lives? Are we hungry for God's righteousness? And, and, and when I say righteousness, don't get tripped up on some big Christian-easy type of word. It's a great word. All it means is rightness. All it means is rightness. And so are we, are we hungrier for God's rightness in our lives in every capacity? Or are we just kind of categorizing the things that we think we need God to speak to, the areas that we think God needs to deal with, and that's, thanks Lord, but I'll deal with these over here. I'll just put these in my pocket. It can't be so. It's all or nothing. Jesus also says in John chapter 6 that he himself is what people really need. So to kind of back up that point, John chapter 6, verse. I'm just going to read a portion of it. Verse 27, Jesus is talking. I'll backfill a little bit. He's talking about uh, the, the kind of these contrasting ideas of, of uh, physical needs and spiritual needs. And he says in verse 27, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has sent him, set his seal on him. Then, he said, <clears throat> then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? In other words, they want to say, How do we get this righteousness? How do, how do we get this rightness that 
that you're talking about, Jesus. And Jesus answered them, verse 29, said to them, this is highlighted in my notes, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. That you believe in him whom he sent. Kind of overlay that idea back to Mark chapter 8. What are we going to do? We have 4,000 people. Actually, not right. We have 4,000 men, however many ladies and kids went with 4,000 guys. You, t- you can do the math, or they just basically estimate it. But essentially, we have the city of Colville sitting on a meadow that hasn't eaten in three days. Now what are we going to do to put it in the Stevens County context? What, what, what are we going to do? He wants to address their spiritual needs first. The rightness that people were looking for and following him for three days really came down to this sentence in Mark and John chapter 6 that you believe on him whom he sent. In the midst of that uncertainty of how you feed that many people is the idea that you simply believe that what Jesus is going to do, how he's going to provide, how he's going to create a solution. That's the real key. It didn't matter how many loaves of bread or fish or whether there was really any at all. The reality was that God had a plan and Jesus was there to walk that out. Let's go back and finish our passage in John lest I get too distracted. Verse 30, Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. These are the Pharisees in John's account that were coming to confront Jesus. He says, Our fathers ate the man in the desert as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's speaking of himself. Then he said to them, Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What Jesus has displayed now two times in the Gospel of Mark is that he cares for his people, is that he cares for his people. He's a compassionate, loving Savior who cares for his people. And that he wants to meet their needs. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the same dynamic is just as true 2,023 years later. That Jesus wants to meet your needs. And he has a plan for your needs. Hey, I get it. Few of us have been in the situation that's laid out here in Mark 8. Most of the time, if we go three days without eating, it's because we're fasting. Not because there's nothing there. Let's be honest about that. We live in the, plant, the land of more than abundance, more than plenty. He's compassionate, though, and he wants to meet our needs. Often we get, here's the issue, often we get focused on the provision rather than the provider. Oftentimes we get focused on the provision rather than the provider John chapter 6, the passage we just read is, can be exhibit A for that statement. And there's two possibilities really as a result of this misplaced focus on the provision rather than pr- the provider. And here's what they are. Is we either, we overemphasize the provision, either we overemphasize the provision or we underemphasize the provider. Those are kind of the two ways that, that can go about it. Man, I just got to, you know, and we get our head down. We, God, we need an answer. But, but, but that, that cry to the Lord is kind of secondary to our head being down and scrambling and trying to do for ourselves what only God can do for us. And we focus primarily on the provision, trying to make it happen or figure out how to make it happen or trying to somehow conjole God into some miracle or whatever. Oftentimes we... You know, we get into these types of situations. Well, Lord, if you'll provide in this, I promise I will, you fill in the blank, right? 
Don't make deals with God. I'm telling you, I've seen this go sideways. I've seen it go sideways in my own life. Don't make deals with God. Take his deal. That's great. That's what we're here to promote. But when we start bargaining with God, better watch out. The second part of it, though, is really there's an underemphasis on the provider. That somehow we don't really believe that, that, that God's going to meet our needs. Or as I mentioned earlier in the sermon, that somehow we feel like we're in imposition to God, that, that, that He doesn't really have to meet our needs because He already did it the first time. And, and, and now here I am again, dragging up on my knees before the Lord, you know, asking for that same thing. No, He wants to meet our needs. And He has a plan to meet our needs. The latter here is what's happening in Mark chapter 8. Let's go back there. The second situation, excuse me. The second situation in this Mark 8 passage is we find in verses 11 through 12, where the Pharisees have really underestimated who Jesus is. And so they're coming to put him to the test. They don't believe that he's real. They don't believe that, that uh, he is uh, the Messiah. They don't believe uh, he doesn't fit into their paradigm of who the Messiah is. Now, let's set the stage this way. These, this was the crew, or at least a representative of the crew, of the Jewish leadership in Israel that memorized the Old Testament, or the first five books anyway. They were the ones that were the premier uh, scholars, the premier leaders. They'd studied it out. They had studied the prophecies. They knew, they knew them forwards and backwards. They were the ones that were supposed to see the Messiah coming first, and they were the ones that caught on last. And so they're coming to test him. He did not fit in their little cubicle, in their box and so they want a sign. That's what the word is. The Pharisees came out. I'm in verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him. I'm going to stop there and say not only should we not argue or uh, bargain with God, it might not be a real good idea to dispute with the Lord either. I don't know. Free advice. You take it and do with it what you want. The Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. They're testing him. They want to see something like in 1 Kings when, when Elijah called fire down from heaven. Like, is that, you know, that's the convincing, you know, the, hypothetically, that's what they wanted. They wanted to see some big major thing. They wanted to, they wanted to see the, the heavens part. Maybe they wanted to see, well, maybe they didn't want to see this, but you think about back in, in, uh, in the Old Testament where the, there was a rebellion, Korah's rebellion, and the ground opened up and swallowed all those people that, that had been a part of this rebellion. All of the Israelites that had decided they didn't want to follow Moses, they didn't want to follow God, God said, all right. Whoosh, grabbed them. Maybe they wanted to see something like that. I don't know. I don't really know what these guys were driving at exactly. But what I do know is their posture is one of contention and disbelief. That's their posture about who Jesus is. Their posture is one of contention. They wanted to argue with him. And it was also one of disbelief. They didn't believe he was the guy. Their posture is one of, you know, just show us one more time. Just show us one more time. I just, I just, we just need to see it one more time. But really, in reality, they weren't going to change their minds I was doing a little um, calculations here, and, and maybe this um, box is up on the screen. But so far in uh, eight chapters of the book of Mark that we've been preaching through, we've looked at 18 miracles. There's 22 miracles in the book of Mark. So we've looked at 81% of all that Jesus has done according to what Mark has written down. Now granted, as I said earlier, Mark's just one of those perspectives, so there's some things that happened that, were, that Mark didn't write down. But that being said, which of these 18 that we've read through so far is not sufficient evidence? 
Which, one is, which, which ones are not sufficient evidence? Or, or are, all, are all 18 of them sufficient evidence that Jesus is who he says he is? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Yet they didn't want to believe. They were contentious and they were in disbelief. And as I said earlier, I'm not exactly sure what sign they were looking for. But I can think of 18 that should have convinced them. I can think of 18 that uh, are spoke about and referred to in the Old Testament, along with many more, if you start talking about the prophecies of the birth and all that comes with all of that. Here's my question. Are we waiting for God to show up our way? That's, what the, that's the reality of where these guys were. They wanted the Messiah to show up their way. Are we waiting to God for God to show up our way? Or are we willing to watch and, and experience God showing up His way? And what does that way look like, you might be thinking. I've done a fair amount of research on this Asbury revival that happened here several weeks ago. And uh, here's what I know. And I don't know it all, so I'm just giving you perspective. I watched, uh, I watched the last about 10, 12 minutes, 15 minutes of the chapel service seemed pretty ordinary to me it didn't seem i shared this with daniel it didn't seem any different than what we would do here other than it being a, a room full of college students i i listened to the la- the closing prayer it seemed completely normal they they closed with a worship couple of worship song it seemed completely normal the interview that i watched with the worship leaders is they got done with that last song and, and nobody went anywhere. They, they just stayed there. And, and it wasn't about them watching what was going up on the, on the stage. It was a room full of college students whose hearts were being melted in the moment. And here's the components. Confession of sin, repentance, and seeking forgiveness and worship. Those four things. They were confessing their sins. They were, they were repenting. They were turning direction. They were worshiping. And they were seeking forgiveness. If there was somebody in the room, you see this on the videos. That, you know, that you'd see one person here just go across the room and there'd be a little conversation and, and, and a prayer and then back again. It was completely, as far as my estimation, 100% organic. And so the worship leaders in this interview said, so we did our last song, and nobody moved. Everybody was just focused on the Lord. They weren't focused on us. They weren't focused on anything else. They weren't focused on their schedule and what they had to do for the rest of the day. They stayed focused on the Lord. So we decided, well, we'll play another song. So they played another song. And the result was the same, so they played another song. And then they decided, well, maybe we should exit stage they went back and kind of like now what do we do and they and they looked out and people are just there praying worshiping so they said well let's go back out and play a couple more songs and the one gal said it seemed like we were up there for 20 minutes and we were done with that set we looked at our watch and we'd been playing worship for for two hours it was amazing it was an amazing interview I go back to my question that I put before us as a family here at Addy. Are we looking for God to just show up in our way and in our time and and do the things that we want Him to do? Or are we willing to surrender all of that for God to show up in His way and for God to have His way in our hearts, have His way in our lives? And don't hear the wrong thing. I'm not here to to say we need to somehow duplicate or replicate all the dynamics of what happened in Asbury, Kentucky. What I'm here to say, though, is those four things, the confession of sin, the seeking forgiveness, the repentance, and the worship are, are part and parcel. They are the, that's, that's our response to what God is doing. And we should always, always, always gravitate towards those things. And you're going to see in this next little interchange God chipping away to bring those to, to
to fruition. Before we get there, and I'm way ahead of myself in my notes, I'll go step back a step. Here's Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Here's, resp- here's his response to the question that I put out, are we, willing, wanting God, are we waiting for God to show up in our way? My question is, is does God sigh at us if that's our mindset? Does he sigh at us? I'm in verse 12 of Mark 8. Does he sigh at us in his spirit and say, what, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no shot, sign shall be given to this generation. We don't want to be that generation, ladies and gentlemen. We don't want to be that generation that is constantly putting God to the test. Uh, where it says there earlier that the Pharisees tested, they come to test Jesus, the literal translation of that is that they, they came to tempt him. The word could be translated either direction. The result of the situation, number two, is no miracle. What they wanted, they did not receive. No miracle for them. No sign for this generation, Jesus says. Now, situation number three is verses 13 through 21, where Jesus cautions and questions his disciples about their understanding. He cautions and he questions his disciples about their understanding. The caution is, The caution that he lays out is be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. This leaven wasn't merely just yeast, like we would make uh, bread, like you ladies would make bread. Sorry guys if you make bread, throw you in there too, I guess, whatever. You want to know the last time I made a loaf of bread? We had a bread maker. So everything just went into that and I put the lid on it, pushed the button and walked away. That's how I made bread. You could use that loaf of bread to chalk your tires on the truck if you needed to. I'm just saying, that was the last loaf that I made. This leaven wasn't merely yeast. What they would do is more like what some of you do when you're making sourdough. Michaela loves to make sourdough. Where they pinch off a, a chunk of the dough left over from the previous batch and then <clears throat> use that in, in, uh, and, and incorporate it into a new loaf. And so they, so they take just a little bit from the previous, they, they keep it back, and then when the next loaf is made, they insert that, and that's enough yeast to make the whole thing work. I'm way over my skis when it comes to making bread already, so I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but there's a principle that Jesus is bringing out here. There's a principle that Jesus is bringing out here, and what he's saying is, is that be careful of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. If you remember back in, I believe it's chapter 3 of Mark, where the Pharisees band together with the Herodians, those that were, that were strict followers of Herod. They banded together to destroy Jesus. And what Jesus is saying here, he says, be careful. Be careful of these guys. Because just a little bit of what they're after, a little bit of what they believe, a little bit of how they operate, if you take that in, it's going to have an effect in your life. A little bit of the wrong theology, in other words, a, a little bit of the wrong belief system is enough to affect all of it. So he says, be careful. Be careful. Don't, don't side up with these guys either group the work of leaven the work of leaven was considered as an illustration all through the bible as the of work of sin and of pride that's kind of the the correlation there so be careful fellas he's saying and i'm here to tell all of us we need to be just as careful because just a little bit of sin and pride that the pharisees had or the herodians had just a little bit of that for us can cause us to go sideways. That's what Jesus was telling his guys. Be cautious. Be cautious. Be careful who's influencing you. I've used this passage. If there's one single verse by which we raised our kids, it was Proverbs 13, 20. He who walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. 
I might not have, I think I might have quoted it in a different translation. The companion of fools will be destroyed, the New King James says. It's important who you allow to influence you. It's important to consider where they're coming from. It's important because like it says in Proverbs, you don't have to be necessarily the one at the wheel causing the damage to become damaged. You can just hang out with these people. You can just be around people. And they're going to have an influencing effect in your life. And it can lead to devastation. It can lead to destruction. So that's the caution that he lays out in the, this situation. The response to Jesus' caution showed just how out of tune they really were. Because they were thinking in the physical realm. Their response bears that out. Is it because we have no bread? Like, what, what, do you, what are you saying about the Pharisees and of Herod? Is it because we forgot to bring some of the, we, we have one loaf, we had seven baskets by the time this thing was all done, and uh, somehow, some way, somebody forgot to pack, you know, lunch. So we, is it because we have no bread? They're thinking physically. Jesus is talking and speaking to them and leading them spiritually. And so he has this list of questions that I just want to read straightforward. I've kind of took them, just kind of copied and pasted them right out of the text where he says in reply, why do you reason because you have no bread? Like, what are you talking about? I'm not even talking about physical. Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Then he really, the third question is really the, the center of it all is, your heart st- are, is your heart still hardened? I want to pause on that for just a second because he's dealing, he has dealt with Pharisees whose hearts are hard and he confronts them. Now he's dealing with his own disciples who he questions, is your heart still hard? Why would he, why would he ask that question? I'll tell you why. Because a hard heart is our default position of the sin nature. That's just where it is. That's always where it is. As, as you think about these little ones, they're downstairs, they're in the back, as they start to grow, as they start to express, uh, as, as the sin nature starts to really show itself, you know, at whatever age, two, three, three, maybe about the age of three, you start to see that even in our little ones. And if we're real honest with ourselves, we know that it's true about ourselves. That my default position, my created in, in brokenness and in, in, in because of the fall of Adam and because of my own decisions, my default position, your default position is to have a hard heart. If that's a new to you, sorry to shock you. But that's the reality where it is. And Jesus is asking because he wants to get to the meat of where things are with his guys. And I believe that he wants that for you and I as well. Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? He's reminding them of what they've gone through. By the way, this... Verse 18 questions, the two questions there, having eyes do you not see and having ears do you not hear? The next one as well, do you not remember? He's not talking about just the miracles of feeding all of these people. He's talking about everything that they've experienced. Do you not get it, he's saying? Do you not understand? How is it that you don't understand, he says in verse 21. See, Jesus' line of questioning was very similar. There's a passage out of Jeremiah chapter 5 where Jesus has a similar line of questioning that Jeremiah does for the people of Israel where he says in Jeremiah 5.20, he says, Declare this in the house of Jacob and proclaim it in Judah, saying, Hear this now, foolish people, without understanding, who have eyes and see not and who have ears and hear not. It's nearly word for word. 
What are we to make of all this? Here's my thought for it. Jesus questions them, not so that he would know where they are, but so they would know where they are. The same thing is true for us. He knows everything about you. Every little, tiny, minute, you know, molecular detail of who everyone is. So he's not short on information and asking questions to fill in the blanks. He's long on questions so that his people will see, wow, this is where I'm really at. This is where, this is where things are really at. These guys have been following him now for some time, and they're still not getting it. And he's essentially saying, I'm going to throw out some questions. <laughs> I'm going to make you think a little bit about where you really are. Where are we? Just pause and insert that question. You can ask yourself, where am I and what I believe about Jesus? Their understanding should have been based on seeing what Jesus had already done. And I want to insert this. It always takes, it always takes divine intervention to get the point. We're going to talk about that next week in a lot more detail. But it always takes a revelation of God to really start to understand. And Jesus has been divinely intervening in each and every situation all along the way. 18 miracles we've looked at where he's had these divine interventions. And those are just the miraculous ones. What's the big idea? If you don't get anything else from today, I would implore you to listen to this. Because I think this is where hope really gets inserted. And that is, is that we can always take the past faithfulness of God as a promise for His continued love and care. You, your life might be in a washing machine of uncertainty. Or it could be on the other side. Maybe there's just no problem in the world. Like you haven't experienced trial or tribulation, you know, and you're sitting there thinking, like, when was the last time? When was the last time? God's faithfulness, his past faithfulness, is always, always, always a promise for his continued love and care. So if you just take a second and look back, if you take a second and look back and say, wow, I remember a time that God did this. I remember a time that God protected me. I remember a time that God provided for me. I remember a time that God answered my prayer. I remember a time that, where even in an, the answer that I didn't get, I saw what God was doing and how he was providing and working in my life. We can always take those past events and then, then insert them into today and also for tomorrow. That's the point. That's what he's trying to get across to his guys. His past faithfulness is always a promise for his continued love and care. And so you can start in Mark 8 here, and you can run that thread all the way back to Genesis 1 in the storyline of God's people. It's, it's easy to see it. It's easy to see it. The trap is, the pitfalls, the potholes for us, is to get our eyes off of that and onto some other solution. That's why he was warning about the Pharisees and the Herodians, and taken on some of their thoughts. The fourth situation, staying on time, the fourth situation we find in verses 22 through 26 where Jesus then heals a blind man. Now, turn there in the passage, but think about this question. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? You think that God's got an awesome sense of humor. Because he's going to roll right into a miracle where he opens a guy's eyes. He's going to roll right into this, this, uh, this opportunity to heal. And as we've read the passage, we can say this. I wanted to throw this out there. It's the only progressive healing in Jesus' ministry right here. It had two parts. Okay? Don't side up with the detractors that try to, to try to dismiss who Jesus is and that he was really the Messiah by, by somehow some of their commentaries of, oh, it wasn't, you know, he didn't do it perfectly, so he must not be perfect. 
He had a plan and a purpose in it. We have to trust in that plan and purpose. It's a good question to ask is why was it progressive? And perhaps it was assigned to the disciples and assigned for us here today that spiritual blindness is kind of healed over time sometimes. That it's not just like this immediate thing and then, and, then, and then, you know, you're converted and boom, and you never have a problem the rest of your life. You never see anything wrong the rest of your life. We all know that that's not true. It, you think about your own testimony. You think about your own experience in your walk with Christ. There's ups and downs. There's times where you slip back and fail and sin, you know, confess it, receive forgiveness from the Lord and whoever else and move forward. Oftentimes it's a process, not so much an event. And if that's the Lord's prerogative and how he wants to heal, uh, who are we to question it? Whatever the reason, though, these facts remain. Jesus heals who, when, and how he desires. And also that we talked about last week is that there's no set pattern. I believe that that's intentional. So that somehow, you know, years later, people wouldn't be trying to just replicate a pattern of healing. I think that Jesus does it intentionally. He doesn't have a pattern. And here's what we do know. The same compassion that Jesus had on these 4,000 hungry men and extended people that were there, ladies and kids. Earlier in the passage, that same compassion he had on this guy. It's the same heart of compassion. It's also the same compassion by which Jesus addresses each one of your issues as they're going on. It's the same compassion that he has uh, uh, in the lives of those that, are, that we know of and, and that, that we're around where God is dealing in their lives and being compassionate to draw them to himself. We receive that same compassion Essentially, it's blindness to sight. It's from no understanding to understanding. And perhaps there's some here that have never had their eyes open. Perhaps there's some here, hey, I'm, I'm not so naive to think that in a group this big that, that, we, that we would have people that don't know who Jesus is, that have no relationship with Christ at all, that are coming for whatever reason. I don't know. Uh, it's not my job to, to discern every you know, heart that rolls through these doors. But the reality is, is that in a group of any size, you can have people that do not know Christ, that have no relationship, that in reality are blinded, in reality have no understanding that Jesus has not been revealed to them in any sort of a way, or the ways that he has been revealed has been full of trouble and confusion. Here's what I'm here to say is today is the day for your eyes to be open to the reality of who Jesus is. Now maybe you've been a believer a long time. Maybe you've, been a, maybe you've grown up in church and had the, the privilege of having you know, a Christian heritage and, 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 you know, and, and have gotten off in life in these great starts. Here's what I'm here to say to you. Don't fill your heart full of pride. Don't allow it to happen. Because you can slip back into the same blindness that somebody that doesn't know Christ is in in reality. Jesus is the Savior who came to save us from our deepest need, which is spiritual blindness. That's our deepest need. You were created in God's image. You were created to represent Him on earth. Sin of Adam and Eve and, and your sin and my sin volitionally have scarred and marred that but that's what God came that's what Jesus came to restore that's what he came to make right we can't earn it we can't bargain for it <laughs> this is one of the reasons why I say don't deal with God don't make don't make bargains with God that you can't keep and I'll guarantee you can't keep them. how do we get it it's a free gift the only thing that that, that the only thing that we can do to get it is to receive it. Receive the truth of who Christ is. Receive Him as Lord and Savior. Trust in Him. Which means, by definition, 
the, the trust that we've been putting in other things or other people must be removed. The focus has to be on Christ. Now the details of how Jesus saves, that's why, we're, that's why we celebrate communion. That's the essence of communion. Here are those details, and I'll have David come up as I close. Is that Jesus came from heaven to live amongst us, the word says. He, he came down off of his throne in glory to become a man, to be born of a virgin, to live amongst us. He died on the cruel cross of Calvary, and he didn't do that for no particular reason. He did it with a huge reason. And that is, in that death, he bore the sins. He paid the penalty for the sins of all mankind. Does that mean everybody will be saved? No, it doesn't. The question is, is do you believe that that's true for you? That's the question. And if you don't believe that, if you've never heard that before, this is your first opportunity. Today's your day. Today's your day to respond, to receive by faith truth of the gospel then he was buried in a borrowed tomb and he rose again from the dead the third day thus proving his victory over sin and death he proved through his resurrection that who he said he was all along was absolutely 100% true Josh uh when we were on vacation, Josh was, was, we were joking around one day, we were doing something, and he's like, no, 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 that's a million percent true. And he started laughing. I said, what's so funny? He says, I had a business guy years ago that used to deal with it, that when, when he was absolutely 100%, or what we would consider 100% convinced of something, he never said it's 100% true. He would say, Josh, no, 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 that's a million percent true. And I want to borrow that line because that's what's true of Jesus in his resurrection in his life, in his teaching, in his provision for his people, in his answers to prayers, in his miracles, all proof, one million percent, if I can use that exaggeration, that he is who he says he is. Amen? Amen. David, come on up.